Okay, good morning, everyone. Yeah, there's still a morning, just about. So it's good to be with you in Central. Uh, we're going to read from God's Word. This is Luke chapter 1. As Dave's just said, we're in the middle of a story there, and this is about Mary. So we're breaking into the story at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And ending there, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. We ask it. Amen. As Dave's already said, we're thinking about the story before the story. Um, we all know the bit that takes place after we get to Bethlehem and Jesus is born and shepherds show up and wise men show up and all the rest of it. And then the rest of the story kicks in. But there is a story before the story. And it, it occupies just one chapter in the account that Dr. Luke gives us um, of the, the, the start of Jesus' life and half a chapter in Matthew's account and nothing at all in Mark or John unless you count John's eternal vista with which he begins his book. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and so on. It's kind of a very different approach to it. So actually, in the Bible, this story before the story takes up very little space. Unlike most major earthly events, the story before the story is only ever known when told by individuals because that story happens in obscurity. And few stories of greatness have a more obscure genesis than this story. You see, the story of God's dealings with our race always involve place, specific place. God shows up at particular locations at particular points in time in the lives of people involves places. And these places gain associations which help us to remember. Last Saturday, I was, uh, Saturday week ago, I was doing the Alpha Day Away for the Alpha course that's taking place in Carnmoney at the moment. And the location for that Alpha Day Away was the Donadry Hotel. 
And every time I go to the Donabry Hotel, I remember a specific day and time. I remember the day and time when the oldest member of my family was married and she and her husband had their reception in that hotel. I remember that day because of the joy that was on my daughter's face. I remember it because of the good time that we had and the food that we enjoyed. I remember being there, Christine and me, on that day. Our first child was being married. It was an exciting moment of time. And every time I walk through the door of the Donadry Hotel, all those scenes come flashing back into my mind because that day is associated with that place. And when I go to that place, the memories come back And the places associated with God's appearance in our world are just the same. The temple in Jerusalem was built on a specific place. The specific place in which it was built was years before this, the threshing floor of Arona. Not an Israelite. The guy who owned that particular spot of ground, it was in the center of his farmland and he had a threshing floor there. And on one really significant moment, In the life of David's kingship, the Lord stopped a plague that was destroying the nation. The destroying angels stopped their work on the threshing floor of Arona. And David was so thankful to God for what he had done that he wanted to offer sacrifice. Arona said to him, offer whatever you want. Take the oxen that belong to me. Take the yoke, smash it up. It will provide timber. Take the floor, it's yours. David said, I will not give to the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. I want to buy the floor. And he bought the ground. And that's the piece of ground on which the temple was ultimately built. It was a place that forever afterwards would be associated with the way in which God works. This was the place where the mercy seat would be found was the place where the destructing judgment of God stopped. And this was the place, the piece of ground that was purchased so a sacrifice could be made that was costly. And those things were associated with the place and then became associated with the temple that was built on it. Place is so significant in God's work among among us. And the places associated with God's appearance in the world are like that. All the other places associated with his saving work among us people are the same. Jericho, Shiloh, Antioch, Patmos, And in the backstory to Christmas, there is a place. We sometimes think that this story starts in Bethlehem, but it doesn't. It starts and continues in Nazareth with a brief interlude in Bethlehem. The story before the story is associated with Nazareth. One recent author has said, overall, Jesus lived the first 30 years of his life in a marginal Jewish hamlet. Estimates of the population of the village seem to vary at this point in time, depending on how far you go into the countryside to count the population. So if you count a more restricted number, you get about 500. If you count a little bit further out into the countryside as being effectively part of the village, you get up to somewhere around 2,000. But it was a small village between 500 and 2,000 people living there, situated in a high valley surrounded by deep sides. Indeed, its very name may derive from the Aramaic word for watchtower, which would be a fairly obvious um, use for that location. And although international and imperial traffic didn't pass through the village itself, it was visible nearby on the main road. 
The valley has a mild climate, encourages the growth of wild flowers and fruit. And this was the place that became Jesus' home for 30 years. It was how he was to be popularly known. Who was this guy? Jesus of Nazareth. And this continued to be his home until the moment of his rejection. And look for it says, they got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Nazareth became a significant place in the life of Jesus. And Nazareth was Mary's hometown. That's the only reason why he was there. It was their home, the home of Mary and Joseph. And something happened in Nazareth. Something which changed the lives of Mary and Joseph and changed the life of the world forever. We read it a moment or two ago. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Nazareth was Mary's home. Isn't it significant that the key character in the backstory of the Messiah is a woman? And into the most important story in all the history of the world steps a young woman, a girl. She is described in Dr. Luke's account as a virgin, which usually would have meant in that generation an unmarried girl of no more than 14 years of age. Think about it for a moment. My eldest granddaughter is 13. I think about Lucy. I think about Mary. Think about it yourself. Who do you know? What young girl do you know is 13 or 14 years of age? That's the reality we're talking about here. Do you know anyone ever invited to a more significant task than the one offered to this 14-year-old girl? But here's the thing. This is not just about Mary being a woman by which I mean it's not just about a person capable of conceiving a child, carrying that child to term, and birthing him successfully. That in itself is an amazing part of the story, but it's not the main part of the story. Because in reality, what we're reading here when we read these verses is what is called a call narrative. It's one of a number of such narratives that occur throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. And therefore, the story of Mary in this moment, this young girl, this young woman, that story at this particular point in time is on a par with the story that occurred in the life of Abraham. God shows up one day and says, go from here. I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but I need you to move. And Abraham moves his family and the story of redemption begins. It's on a par with the story of the life of Samuel, the young boy in the in the sanctuary at Shiloh with the old priest. And during the night, one evening, God calls him. Eventually, he figures out who it is and he responds to the call. The scripture says from that moment, no word ever dropped from Samuel's mouth unfulfilled. Something incredible happened in the life of Samuel. That story is on a par with the story of Mary. The story of Mary is on a par with the life of Isaiah who goes to the temple one day and the roof lifts off and God speaks to him. And he hears a conversation going on and he hears someone say, who will we send? Who will go for us? And he puts his hand up 
I'll go. Story of Mary is on a par with that story. Story of Mary is on a par with the life of Moses. Keeping his father-in-law's flocks on the hillside, miles away from where he should have been. God shows up in the form of a bush that appears to be on fire and tells him, I need you to take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Now go back and set my people free. It's a call narrative. It's the same kind of story. What happened in Nazareth that day to this young woman was exactly the same as what happened to all those others and numerous others that we could quote. Mary answered the call of God, just like the rest of them. And call narratives involve two sets of actions. It doesn't matter which, matter which call story you choose. They all fit more or less the same pattern. The first actions that you observe in a call story are the action of God. This narrative in Luke chapter 1 is littered with the works of God. God sends an angel messenger, verse 26. God favors Mary, verses 28 and 30. The son that Mary will have will be the son of the Most High, he'll be the son of God. The Lord will give her son a throne, and not just any throne, but the throne of his father David. And the power of the Most High will overshadow this young girl, so she will conceive a child and birth that child, and that child will be the Son of God. God's action is all over the story. God is going to do a lot in Nazareth and in the life of Mary in particular. But what's really interesting about this is this work involves no consultation of any kind with Mary. The reality is that the angel is sent with an announcement. The angel is not sent to enter into contract negotiations with Mary to see on what terms she would be willing to do this particular work for the Lord, what she would expect in response for what she was going to do, and what the major conditions would be. The angel does not come to enter contract negotiations with Mary. The angel comes to announce to Mary what is going to happen in her life. And this is how God works. He is a king, and this is what kings do. They do not enter into contract negotiations. They do not seek our consent or the consensus of our community. They do what they do. I love that line from the rule of faith in our denomination, which is read at every service where someone is ordained or installed to work in a local congregation. And Jesus Christ is described as the sole king and head of the church. He doesn't enter contract negotiations with anyone. He's a king. He has a right to do this. You will no doubt have been following on the news the case of Britney Spears, who for 13 years was under the conservatorship, whatever on earth that means, of her dad because she had a serious mental health incident at a point in her life. She was held to be no longer able to look after her own affairs, so her father was given the right to do that, and he did that for 13 years during most of that time, however, people have been up in arms about it. Brittany has been seeking to get free. There's a whole campaign going on about it. It became a popular case in the United States. People were out in the streets with banners that said, Free Brittany. 
And I'm sure you were really worked up about this and concerned about it, and you've been following the story. I'm sure you're all greatly relieved to know that the conservatorship is over and Brittany can now spend her fortune if she wants to. And everybody was up in arms. Why should her dad have the right to do this? Yet there is a king who has the right to dispose of our lives as he chooses. John Wimber said, I am small change in his pocket. He can spend me as he pleases. God has the right, the authority, and the power to make decisions around my life that place me in the center of his purposes. And in this planning process, he has no need to contact me. It's not like anything else in life, the call of God. It's not like when I bought my house and Christy and me were planning for how we wanted to fix it up. We decided to put a small extension on the side and so plans had to be drawn up. The plans had to be submitted to the local council for them to approve and part of the approval process is that the council wrote out to all my neighbours to ask me if they were happy about me putting the small extension on the side of my house and any of them could have objected. They could have said, well, it's going to block the light or, or whatever and they had the right to object. It was a consultation process as part of the planning. Fortunately, nobody did and the extension got built. But they could have. But God doesn't work like that. He takes the initiative. He makes the decisions in advance. And he doesn't ask us what we think. And in this case, God chose the town of Nazareth, a place one commentator has called a backwater of a backwater a place proverbial among observant Jews as a dump. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? One of them them famously said when they were told that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. They said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? That was people's general attitude to this place. He picked a place that was a backwater of a backwater and he picked a girl of no more than 14. He didn't consult anybody about it. At first, this seems almost scandalous. Time and place and the lives of ordinary people turned upside down without consultation or consent. But if you stop and think about it for a moment, you see another picture. Because what you have here in this action of God, which is the center of every call narrative in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, what you have here is the picture of opportunity. Because God's call bore no relationship to the suitability of the place or the person, just their availability. That was all. And that opens up incredible doors of opportunity for this church, for this city, for every person in this building this morning. Because the call is not dependent on the suitability of the place or the people or anything else, but only upon the choice and blessing of God. This is a call narrative. And the person making the call is a king the king. 
And he is able to do exactly the same right here, right now. This gives me hope. This gives me hope because whatever state the city may be in, whatever may be the issues this church faces, whatever may be the struggles I have in my personal life, none of those things, absolutely none of those things prevent the purposes of God from taking place. He's a king. He does what kings do. He can do that in your life. He can do that in this church. He can do that in this city. This is the door of opportunity right before us now. The action of God. That's the first key part of a call narrative. Second point is the response of Mary. When God calls, every set of circumstances in the scripture, when God calls, there are personal consequences for the person called. Moses had to return to the place where he was a fugitive from justice. Hosea had to go to the public marketplace and purchase back his wife from slavery. Jeremiah had to endure personal rejection for the message that he was given to preach throughout the totality of his ministry. There were personal consequences of the call of God. But of all those called to significant positions in the progress of the kingdom, did anyone else's calling involve a more personal consequence than Mary's did? We read in Luke 2, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. There was the physicality of the consequence to this call, something I cannot fully appreciate or understand. In fact, the person talking about this today shouldn't really be me at all. It should be a woman who has herself been a mum. Because only someone in those circumstances could really understand what it meant for Mary to hear what the angel told her that day at 14 years of age. But I do know this, that of the many things that have caused wonder in my life, very, very few come close to the reverence and admiration with which I watched my wife carry and birth our four children. What is risked by a mum, sacrificed by a mum, endured by a mum to bring a brand new life into the world is massive. And this, and so much more than this, the Lord commanded of this 14-year-old girl. There were intimate, personal consequences for Mary in the call of God. But even greater than the intimate physical challenge involved for someone so young was the reputational damage. Who would ever believe the story? In fact, not even the man she loved believed it. We read in Matthew 1, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He didn't believe what she told him. So God had to intervene, same to send the same angel messenger he previously sent to Mary to explain to Joseph what was going on. 
Do you think she ever shook off the shame? Do you think anyone ever believed her story? No matter what followed in her life from that point in time, she'd always be the person that was fingered in the crowd. There's that girl. There's that woman. The personal, reputational damage was massive. But here's the thing. She must have known those two things in that moment. She, she couldn't know exactly what they looked like, but she must have known as she listened to what the angel had to say that she was about to have to endure everything that it would mean to endure, to conceive and carry and birth a child and then what other people would think and how many people would or wouldn't believe her when she told them the story of what was happening in her life. All of those things must have flashed through her mind in those moments as she listened to the angel speak. But here's the thing. Mary embraced the calling. I am the Lord's servant, she said. May your word to me be fulfilled. If ever a modern translation misses the whole kind of mystery and joy of, of that moment when Mary said those things, I'm sorry, much as I love the NIV, I feel it just completely misses the whole thing right there. J.B. Phillips puts it like this. I belong to the Lord, body and soul. Let it happen, as you say. I belong to the Lord, body and soul. Let it happen, as you say. In all the scripture, apart from the surrender of our Lord Jesus to his Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before the cross, in all the scripture, apart from that narrative, is there a greater example of response to the call of God? She just said yes. No argument like Moses who went on arguing with God to the point of exasperation. No objection like Jonah who hears the call of God and goes in the opposite direction in the hope that it will frustrate what God wants him to do. No hiding like Saul, first king of Israel, who when they went to anoint him to kingship couldn't be found because he was hiding amongst the luggage. No sadness like there was in the life of the rich young ruler when Jesus explained to him the only one thing he needed to do and he couldn't do it. In Mary's case, just her unequivocal yes. For whatever reason, Mary, young though she was, understood something significant about the call of God. The angel said it twice, and she accepted that it was true. And look, when we read, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Favor. This call, hard though it was going to be, this call was a gracious thing. God was doing something in her life that he would not do in anyone else's life in the whole of the history of mankind from beginning to end. This was a moment of favor. Nobody else would get the chance to do this, just Mary. In that famous speech that John F. Kennedy made when he launched the program that ultimately put human beings on the surface of the moon, he said famously in that speech that he said that this particular thing that he was committing to do in the next decade was one of a number of challenges that he called his nation to take on. And he said this, that they were going to take them on not because they were easy, but because they were hard. And that's special. 
it's special to understand that history has opened up a moment for you to do something that is really difficult, but only you get the chance to do this. And Mary said, yes, please. I see that, even in our own generation. I see it on Dave and Joy, the central team. Doing this wasn't easy. It was really hard for all sorts of reasons. Things that had to be left behind. Situations that brought joy and happiness that had to be abandoned to come and do this. And in the early years, this was really hard. But something about it said, God is opening a door. The favor of the Lord is on this. I want to do this. I want to be a part of this. He's not asking somebody else. He's asking me. My answer is yes. And Mary said, yes. The story behind the story is a call narrative. It's a common thing. It crops up again and again and again in the history of God's dealings with his people. Because how it works is this. He is a king. He doesn't do consultation. He doesn't do discussion. He doesn't work by consensus. He takes initiative. That's who he is. He shows up in this young girl's home and he makes an announcement. This is what is going to happen to you. That's the nature of a call. And it could just be that's exactly where you are right now. Because that's the whole hope-giving factor of this narrative, that God is a king, he is still a king, and he still acts in the same way. And right now, right here in our generation, he's doing the same things. He has so many wants to do with your life. You hear about it. You become aware of it. There are no negotiations. It is not what you wanted. I look back on my own life over the years. There's loads of times God wanted me to do things I didn't want to do. I haven't wanted to walk through what I've walked through in the last two years, but you don't get a choice about that. He's a king. He doesn't ask me my opinion. Maybe that's what's happening to you right now, and you know it. It's been going on now. You've been wrestling with it. That's the action of God. It's who he is, what he does. And actually, we should be thankful for it because it's the very moment of opportunity. If he didn't do this, then there would be no opportunity. And then there is the response of the person being called. And Mary said yes. No questions, no arguments, no dispute. Whatever you want, body and soul, I'm in for it. And then everything becomes possible. Then a door is opened for the only son of the living God to enter time and space to live and minister and preach and heal and die and rise again and pay my debt and yours and open the door of salvation to the whole of mankind. And all of that becomes possible because this 14-year-old girl said, yes, I will do it. Anything is possible in our world when God calls and when people say yes.